I am joined by Rich Kellerman, co-founder and CEO of Bond Pet Foods, based in Boulder, Colorado. Bond Pet Foods is an amazing company that's disrupting the pet food industry by creating high-quality meat protein pet food that's brewed like beer instead of farmed. So really looking forward to hearing more about that. Thank you very much for joining me, Rich. Yeah, thanks for having me, Daniel. Appreciate it. Yeah, and so today what, I, what I'd like to talk about is, first of all, what you do really at Bond Pet Foods, and then we'll go into how you got into the industry and a little bit of background, and I'd love to hear about your thoughts on the future of food. So in a nutshell, just to start, what, what exactly does it mean when I said that you brew meat like beer? What exactly is that? Yeah, it's a crazy thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at Bond, we're working with uh, biotechnology to make pet food from animal protein like chicken, turkey, and beef without the animal. Um, and how that works is basically we're using technologies that have been around for more than half a century to make anything, uh, things like uh, enzymes for cheese manufacture or good bacteria for probiotic supplements. Or if you're familiar with the Impossible Burger, which I'm sure you are, mm -hmm. the heme protein that's used in that, we're just reassembling the process to more efficiently and responsibly harvest high quality meat proteins and then use that as a foundation of our recipes. So it's um, it, it sounds a little bit strange and odd, but the reality is that at a high level, this technique has been used for decades to produce so many different proteins and enzymes that uh, are part of our, our diets today, whether we know it or not. Um, and it gets, it gets a little bit technical in how we're re readjusting that process to ultimately produce meat proteins for pet consumption. Um, but essentially, if, uh, if we want to dive in just for a beat on that. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to hear it. Uh, basically, what we do is we uh, we take a, a biopsy from a farm animal like a chicken, and that's where we're starting since mm -hmm. chicken is the most consumed meat in the world for people and pets. Right. Okay. And then we isolate the muscle DNA, the skeletal muscle DNA from mm -hmm. that chicken, which is the building blocks of meat. And then we insert that into a microbe like a yeast uh, and then use the machinery of that yeast once you put it into a uh, fermentation tank, a brewing tank, to re re uh, recapitulate the same proteins that are found in that chicken and farm in the field. So as the yeast grows, the muscle protein grows inside of it. Mm -hmm. And then once it reaches a certain density, we pull it out, we gently dry it down so it's a concentrated protein, and then we have something that's beautiful to mix into uh, freeze-dried, extruded, uh, baked, treat, food, you name it. It has, a, it has broad utility. And again, that sounds like, I think to most people who are listening or watching, that's something that's a foreign concept, but uh, rewind several decades back and um, uh, say like 30-ish years ago, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a little longer, the way that cheese was manufactured was that um, you would have to extract the enzymes from uh, the forestomach of a baby calf to include in the cheese-making process to separate the curds in the whey. And as more people ate cheese <laughs> and uh, there were more mouths to feed and you had to scale that up, 
uh, it just became a really inefficient way of getting that input into the cheese making process. It required a lot of land, water, and energy to get yeah. that from those baby calves. Uh, a lot of slaughter, obviously, to be able to procure those, those different enzymes. And some smart scientists said, well, wait a minute. We can use some technologies that are out there right now to rep replicate uh, through this process the production of those same enzymes without all of that, uh, all those downsides. Mm -hmm. So they extracted, um, they took a sample from a baby calf, they isolated the, uh, uh, the, the uh, kind of the, the genes that would express those enzymes, they inserted it into a microbe and then same, used those same brewing process to produce those uh, ingredients that are used in uh, almost 90% of all cheese that's sold in the U.S., for example, today are made in part through those enzymes, wow. um, e even organic cheese. So most people aren't aware of this. It does sound strange and foreign, but it's a technique that's been used for a long, long time, and we're just adjusting that to ultimately create meat protein for dogs and cats. That's crazy. So, I mean, is it when, when, when we say brewed like beer, I mean, how accurate is that? Yeah, I mean, it, it is uh, fairly accurate of a description of the process. Wow. If, if you saw, if you walked into our facility, future facility, once we're producing a higher volume and tonnage of this protein, it looks like a brewery. We'll have brewing tanks. Uh, we put the yeast into these tanks that also contain that genetic uh, kind of code and material of the chicken. Mm -hmm. And then we feed that yeast, simple sugars and salts and vitamins uh, to make it happy and want to grow. And you can, you can adjust and, and calibrate the nutrient broth that you're feeding it as well to make sure that um, it's, it's efficient of a growth process so that it's growing fast and it's growing and expressing exactly what we're looking for. You can control the pH, the temperature, all the same things that you would if you're if you're essentially trying to produce a, a different kind of beer. The only difference is instead of having this nice frothy liquid at the end of it, right? We have uh, an ingredient that's um, a ch part chicken protein in this instance, part yeast protein, and then we take that gently, dry it down, and as I said, we have a, a nice concentrated powder then that we can incorporate into a, a variety of different products and recipes. Wow. That's, that's incredible. How did you, I mean, what was the pivotal moment really for you to, to start this work? Cause it's so, I, I mean, it's unique. It's interesting. It's obviously like you're saying people are, I'm sure people look at you funny when you say that we brew meat and make that food out of it. So what was that moment? Yeah, it's a good question because I, I don't have a science background, uh, don't have a history in biotechnology or even pet nutrition. My my background's in advertising. I spent the last, it's crazy to say, 20, 25 years uh, working at uh, a number of agencies in the U.S. on everything from diapers to motorcycles. And mm -hmm. an account that brought me out here to Boulder uh, was the Burger King account. And my role on that account was that of a strategist. So I wasn't actually the guy that was creating the copy and the art direction and the ads, but it was working with our internal teams and the client to help them frame up the challenge that they might be facing from a business standpoint. And right. then once we work through that, give the creative teams direction on, on how, what they should think about when they're creating their campaign. Um, 
So the challenge for Burger King was to really understand at that time, this is about 10 years ago, uh, how they could compete with uh, fast food um, outlets like Panera and Chipotle, who are redefining what fast food is in terms of ingredient specification and quality and everything else. Mm-hmm. And that just meant that we were working with a different set of stakeholders on the client side. It wasn't just the marketing people, but it was the supply chain guys and the product development people. And long story short, that whole dialogue uh, got me to just rethi- open my eyes about the challenges that are attached to conventional agriculture, especially the procurement and sourcing of meat mm. and the challenges that come with it. You know, so it's not just you know, how we can do it, uh, produce that um, those proteins and those foods more efficiently, but uh, and maybe some of this was more of my reading on the side from the conversation, but it was also issues around farm animal welfare and yeah. safety and um, sustainability. Just the fact that it takes uh, wealth of resources to produce a kilogram or a pound of meat, and that whole. Um, that whole uh, exploration stuck with me that eventually, you know, my, my mindset towards food changed and I became a vegan working on Burger King uh, and I'd have to hide it in meetings, you know, <laughs> these like big carts of Whoppers would get uh, kind of get carted in and chicken sandwiches. I'm like, no, no, I'm not hungry. Like, dude, it's been like eight hours. <laughs> okay, can you not be hungry? So uh, really eventually, big breakfast. <laughs> yeah, really big breakfast. Um, so, uh, so that just personally, that whole experience kind of transformed my own thinking on around food. And my wife was in the same boat. Uh, mm. She's been she was a vegetarian since she was uh, she was young. So uh, we became a vegetarian vegan family, ultimately vegan. And then when my wife and I got our first dog together several years later, I wrestled with that tension of having to feed our new dog and our cat's meat, even though we didn't want to make them vegan because we know that meat, especially for cats, but dogs as well, can be a beautiful thing for their health and nutrition. Yeah, of course. But it, it just got me to ask, uh, you know, could there be a better way of producing some of these same ingredients for our beloved family members? And, and that kind of set the stage for Bond and where it started to take off beyond just the concept was I started to hear some stirrings of other companies in the food tech space, uh, like Perfect Day Foods, mm-hmm. who are creating milk protein or Clara with egg protein, or Memphis Meats that you know more ambitiously are trying to create juicy steaks and chicken breast and all that good stuff. Um, and for me... I was excited because I'm like, oh man, I'll be able to eat cheese and milk and steak again. That's amazing. But then once I immersed myself a bit more and, and uh, the companies and the technologies that were out there and talked to NGOs that were really supportive of new businesses in the space, I realized that if somebody could crack the code for pets, uh, the path to commercialization could be relatively easier. And what I mean by that is for dogs and cats, you don't have to fully recreate the meat-eating experience, right? It's not about the taste, the texture, the mouthfeel, all those things that any company has to nail in order for the public to fully embrace it. For dogs and cats, there's more flexibility in its form. 
and its function uh, and its taste. A dog doesn't necessarily know that a steak has to taste like that. They just know it tastes good, right? Um, and that's enough. So there's some variability and, and uh, I guess, and what we need to nail on, on the palatability front. But um, it, I, I guess the, the one thing that uh, essentially makes it different is for dogs and cats, it's about nutrition instead of the experience of eating meat. So with that basic realization, I, I felt like if the right team could be put together that had depth of expertise in veterinary nutrition and biotechnology and scale up of novel proteins and enzymes, that we could, uh, with a new company, uh, create something special in this, in this industry and in this category, creating meat foods, uh, foods that are made from real meat protein but without um, all the ill effects that are attached to um, conventional agriculture and conventional meat production. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's awesome. I think what's interesting to me is as I was reading about uh, the work you're doing, I'm, I'm actually, I found that there is a, a much bigger proportion of meat um, that's actually used for pet food than I thought um, because one, my first question that I thought to myself, um, and then I'll, I'll ask this to you is, you know, I always thought pet food is made of like the leftovers of, of, uh, animal agriculture. Um, yeah. And, and that in part is, is true, Daniel. I mean, there's, there's a whole industry that's built around taking chicken hearts and livers and everything else that you can imagine, beaks, feet, <laughs> And turning it into uh, uh, meal protein, uh, right? right? And, and that certainly is a big part of uh, dog and, and cat food products today. I, I'll say that there are two things on that, however. The first is that um, the fastest growing uh, brands and products in the pet food space right now, and they have been for the last several years, are things like human-grade ingredients and proteins and products. So more companies are looking for some of the same uh, meat products to include in their pet food recipes as, as we eat ourselves. There's just, you know, a, from a, a consumer standpoint, uh, a greater interest in, in giving their dogs and cats the same things that we eat. So that's putting some more pressure on the supply chain. Makes sense. But also, and perhaps more importantly, I think for, for most pet owners is it's really hard to trace like a lot of those byproducts and where they come from and uh, they aren't always safe. Um, you know, there are a lot of the recalls here in the U S for example, I always massacre uh, the name of this drug, but um, it's a euthanasia drug that's used to put down dogs and cats and zoo animals. Uh, and there have been a number of recalls over the past few years that's where um, that drug has been found in pet food because uh, a lot of those carcasses somehow find their way to a rendering plant along with the beaks and everything else that are, you know, the byproducts and the dregs of, of meat production. Wow. And, and so dogs and cats essentially are eating dogs and cats. Um, so the traceability of some of these byproducts sometimes uh, aren't as good as they can be. So from a safety standpoint, that's that's also something that uh, can be of a, c a concern. And then on top of that, 
um, especially with like, it's true with uh, kibble, but more for raw diets and wet foods and other things that uh, are a little bit more in their pure form, in their raw form. Uh, there's a risk of uh, getting sick through uh, pathogens like salmonella and E. coli and listeria mm -hmm. that are just part of that for the pet owner, but also potentially for the dog. So there, there is an opportunity to, for all those reasons, to produce a cleaner, safer, more responsible food. And that's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, we set out to do what we're doing. Yeah. Well, that certainly makes sense. Um, it's, uh, like, like Paul Shapiro said, I had Paul Shapiro on the show who, um, wrote the book about clean meat uh, a couple of years ago, back in 2018. And he was saying that, uh, whenever you buy meat and bring it home from the store, you always like keep it separate from the rest of your groceries. You'd never cut meat on the same cutting board and then, you know, put, um, raw vegetables on there and then feed like, just because it's so, uh, there's so many, so much bacteria on it and there's probably viruses and all sorts of things you need to, as he says, literally cook the crap out of your meat. And, yeah. um, yeah. and that's one of the main benefits. And that's like what you're saying here as well. Um, so it makes a lot of sense from a, from a health standpoint. And to your point as well, I know, um, dog owners and, and my, my dad is one of them who loves to, who now cooks, uh, who, who makes chicken and like with rice, uh, for his dog. And he just buys basically double, um, some chicken for himself, some for his dog. And there you go. That's, uh, that's the, I'm sure there's a lot of people who do that. I've seen it more than once. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to know, uh, who is Inga? Inga. She's a great chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, what, uh, this was a little over a year ago now. We, we, we took a trip to a farm north of Wichita, Kansas. It was a heritage chicken farm. So a heritage chicken is a chicken that essentially was raised like they were in the farms of yesteryear. You know, oh, wow. instead of li living, I think the average chicken today on an industrial farm maybe lives at six weeks at the most from when they're born wow. and then they're slaughtered. They, they, they basically uh, bred to grow fast and fat and mm -hmm. then also with the feed and everything so that, you know, they can slaughter them fairly quickly and get that protein uh, in the most efficient way possible. So, um, yeah, that, I mean, there's... In some ways, there's not too much natural about that, but that's our food system right now yep. for, for conventional proteins. For heritage chickens, they can live up to six to eight years or more. Um, and so they have like a free range life. They grow slower. Uh, and then when they are harvested, um, it's a different, obviously, kind of chicken and flavor and taste and it's leaner and everything else. But uh, there's this farm that we went to uh, we were introduced to them by Farm Forward, another nonprofit organization that just looks throughout the, the supply chain and farms throughout the country. And they, they support uh, farmers who are doing um, uh, uh, agriculture and animal husbandry like in a more, more responsible way in a conventional sense. So anyway, we went, out, we went out there because we felt it was important to know the chicken that we're going to be extracting the DNA from, from the genes from. Um, and um, also just from a storytelling standpoint, let people know that we knew the origin of the source of our chicken. It wasn't just like we were able to kind of create a blueprint from the chicken genome that was already been read. And then we 
are able to extract it from, um, you know, some bank somewhere or right. some random chicken, but we were able to point to it. So we, we took that trip, crazy trip. It was cold as heck. Uh, it was in the end of February. Uh, the, the ground was frozen. Uh, there was eight of us packed in the van. So oh, kind of like one of those like family trips where you're like, are we there yet? <laughs> but uh, yeah, we went there and we took some blood samples from uh, uh, several chickens to make sure that we had enough um, uh, material to work from. And one of them that ultimately is the, the source of our, our, uh, our blueprint is her name was Inga. Uh, that we named her because it's a, a Swedish town called Lindsberg. So we felt like that was the right name for her. And we're working with that blueprint of Inga and that material through the process that I described before. So we isolated that, that gene, put it into a yeast. And then as we move further in our development process and we start to scale up, uh, she's the one that's basically informing what that protein looks like and what wow. it, what it what it what it what it uh comprises what it constitutes so yeah she's uh that's our girl that's, that's amazing. the talk about a difference in terms of a scalable solution between that because i imagine the the plan is to be able to sell this pet food all over the country if not the world sure yep and it yeah. took one chicken one vial Whereas, yeah, one one vial from one chicken who's still alive, right? Yeah. So it, it, and instead of, yeah, and you know, at scale with the tonnage that we will be doing one day, having to have like thousands, if not tens of thousands, or if not millions, right, yeah, exactly. of, of chickens to be able to produce the equivalent protein. Yeah, it's incredible. So this this process, because I've, I've spoken to a number of people now um, on the show about these this type of, I suppose, just to give it a blanket term, uh, alternative meat, quote unquote. Um, so there are, there are people like, for example, um, I spoke with Blue Nalu uh, and Lou Cooperhouse, who's making fish, and he prefers the term cell-based. Then uh, I spoke, to, um, and also Shiok Meats out in Singapore, Sandia, uh, she also calls it cell-based. And then I spoke with uh, New Age Meats, Brian Spears, and he calls it cultivated. Um, that's his term. I'm noticing that you're calling it cultured, and and actually the one of the main differences that I'm hearing is that no one has spoken about yeast. You're the first one. Um, so is there a kind of like is there one term to that that's going to uh, describe all of them, or it, is there really different terms for different types of methods? Yeah, I mean each method is a bit different. Um, I think what you're finding is an industry that's so new, yeah. you know, that people are trying to find the right word to explain it um, because it's not like, you know, five years ago, anything like this existed even in its early form and discovery. Yeah. So everyone's just trying to find the way to talk about it that will make sense to people. And I think by and large, there's a lot of overlap between uh, these different processes and the mechanics of how they work. Um, we're calling it cultured because uh, in, in some ways we feel like that best represents our process. You know, we're, yeah. you know, we're taking this culture from a chicken, mm. we're putting it into a yeast, and then we're using the mechanics of the machinery of the yeast as it grows to produce our ultimate chicken protein. Now it, that that finished product that we're making 
is also very different from Blue Nalu, who's at the end of the day gonna create something where you look at your plate and it looks like tuna or yeah. something that you get from the grocer's uh, shelf. For us, it's it is that dried protein. So it's just the protein that you know we're producing here. So it's culturing that chicken, going through this process, and then creating this protein at the end of the day. Makes so sense. I I think in the next several years, like um, as some of these products and meats and proteins begin to get commercialized, everyone will find their way when it comes to the nomenclature and language, but. Um, I think by and large, uh, they're all similar ways to just describe a different way of fermenting, brewing, culturing meat, uh, in a way that, you know, we never could before. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's uh, it's an incredible technology. And I, I think you're absolutely right. It, I, I, it sounds like one of the main differences, which, um, now that you pointed it out, I finally, I, I see it is, um, you're really focusing on, on creating high quality protein, which is, yep. um, which makes sense. Whereas, uh, these other companies are really creating meat, which is, I suppose, like the whole experience of eating. Uh, right. It, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they have to, and I can't wait to the day that, uh, their products are on the market personally for myself selfishly, yeah. but you know, they have to create some kind of, um, uh, like scaffolding or, or, right something that it can grow on so that it has the, you know, the, the form of a steak or a breast chicken breast or something like that. Yeah. Well, well, while you're right for us, it's, it's mostly, if not wholly about the meat protein that is central to, um, a dog's and cat's diet and for their optimal health. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's why I think we're solving a different problem, ending up with a different form through our protocols and, and what we're making. But in the end, it does the same service and helping to kind of reduce the uh, everything that we talked about uh, several times already, the, the yeah. impacts of, of uh, meat production for this specific application. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's great work that you're doing. So what what's next exactly? I mean, as far as um, uh, well, let's first start with uh, what what's next specifically for Bond Pet Foods. Yeah, so we are um, in the thick of our discovery in our R and D. We already have produced several chicken proteins. Mm. Uh, we're doing a, a demo day over the next month where we'll have enough of that ingredient where we'll. We'll be able to feed it to some lucky dogs here in Boulder, and we'll have some robust nutritional analytics on it to show how it compares to uh, conventional chicken and other plant and microbial proteins that are on the market. So that's a, a big milestone for us in our own um, uh, proprietary protein development. But mm -hmm. in the meantime, uh, we just launched it a couple weeks ago. We introduced a first-generation product uh, which is a dog treat. Um, it's actually really cool. It's not just the biscuit in the bag. It, think of it like a candy bar that's perforated so you can pop off a brick, say good boy, or you go on a long hike, take off a couple to give them more sustenance, and then it's resealable packaging so you can put it back in your pocket. Anyway, I'm biased, obviously, <laughs> but the form is pretty cool. But the reason that we're starting with this first product is um, – it, it's core ingredient and it is a pure microbial protein. So think of instead of a, 
a yeast has been um, adjusted with Inga, right, as part of its, its, uh, its growth and development. It's just a pure nutritional yeast. But it's still made through fermentation. You still brew it and then uh, kill that yeast once it comes out of the brewing tank. Uh, so it's inactive, gently dry it down, and you're left with a concentrated protein. So the mechanics, with the exception of Inga, are the same to cr- produce this um, high-quality protein ingredient. Oh, wow. And the reason that we're starting there is so that we can begin to educate the public about the beauty and merits of proteins and products that are in part made through fermentation build that trust, get people to have some semblance of how this works so that when we introduce our, our meat proteins a few years down the line, um, we'll have an audience that's willing to try it. Um, and we've, we've built that relationship. So it's a little bit of a staged approach and we'll be over the next couple of years while the R and D is happening in the background, be introducing other uh, cat and dog treats and other toppers and products to build a, a, a broader portfolio of offerings for pet parents. Uh, but the, the Holy grail and the goal would be once we have our chicken proteins and other proteins, by the way, we're not going to just be doing chicken. It'll be mm-hmm. fish and Turkey and beef and other uh, uh, animal proteins down the road would be to have enough volume and enough, pro- enough of that ingredient that we can include in primary diets. So what your dogs and cats get day and night, we're replacing those conventional meats from the supply chain by the volume, the greater volume of, um, of, of meat proteins that we're producing on our own. That's so cool. And so, I, I mean, are, what do you think of as, as the future for uh, pet food in general as the industry? I think just reading the tea leaves and, um, you know, I, you know there, there are a lot of companies out there right now that are fantastic companies like Nestle Purina and Mars Pet Care and others who are feeding the world basically with their food, but they are uh, looking at the sourcing challenges and supply chain challenges mm. of being able to produce uh, the volume that will be required to service a growing cat and dog population you know as the population grows more pet parents as well it usually goes hand in hand um so they are talking to us and other companies that are early stages in the space because they know the value that this could bring um not just to the category with an offering like bonds but also for their own portfolios if these ingredients are one day available this could help them um, make sure that they have enough protein to be able to supply um, you know their their own growth in their own portfolio so so i think the future of the pet food industry would be not just with our proteins, but with other proteins that are starting to emerge through other companies, other technologies, other novel proteins as well, like cricket protein and others. Uh, You'll see more of that in the foods that you buy off the shelf because you have to. There's no way that um, we'll be able to responsibly, but also just from a supply side of things, be able to uh, produce as much meat that will be required to, to feed in a conventional sense, uh, these cats and dogs. 
Yeah, that's that's incredible. I mean, it sounds like this. Uh, if the if those big players are moving in that direction uh, as well, and they're investigating and and talking to you, then this really is the the trend. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The pro the promise of it is is um, something that I think every major pet food company in the world is something uh, that they're keeping an eye on and they're talking to. Um, companies like us and others to to uh, to make sure that they understand what this is and its safety and its performance and efficacy, mm -hmm. so that one day, you know, they can uh, you know take part in this once it's cleared. Uh, you know, those those uh, significant milestones that have to happen in, with any new technology. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of um, some of these large um, companies like Cargill and Tyson. I've heard them described as protein companies not meat companies. And for them, uh, when you shift that language, even slightly like that, uh, it instantly sh opens up what they're able to do because now they're not just mm -hmm. focused on meat, it's protein. So it doesn't really matter where it comes from per se, as long as it's protein. Uh, right. And it sounds like this is kind of similar to that. Absolutely. Yep. That's really cool. One fun question that I, I love to ask is just, uh, just to hear is uh, who is your sustainability hero, quote unquote? Ah, my sustainability hero. Good <laughs> Lord. Um, so my sustainability hero, oh, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I would have to say, um, you know, since I'm so hyper-focused on um, this, this uh, emerging alternative protein sector, yeah, I would have to say, and um, I, I can't remember the names. Is it Ethan Brown, right? Like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, like the guys that are kind of blazing trails uh, with their products right now. It's just amazing to see what they've been able to do with their focus and their energy in just a, a few short years to get the public to wholly reconsider, you know, what a good burger is, right? Yeah. Or a piece of, or a good sausage, right? It's uh you know, they've created products that are phenomenal. Um, so, and not just for the experience of eating meat, but what they are also starting to help um, solve when it comes to um, everything that we're trying to do with sustainability and farm animal welfare and everything else. They're kind of taking a piece of some of those issues and helping mitigate all that. So, I guess uh, just the top of mind, I would say uh, the guys that are steering, um, you know, those companies and, and making such great progress, uh, I, I think they, they probably would rise to the top um, for me. Yeah, I think they're, the, those two companies are, are incredible because not only are they, uh, like you said, they're, they're doing a lot of great work um, for the environment, sustainability, uh, they're also just making it publicly kind of normal now that meat or protein going back to that doesn't necessarily need to come from an animal uh, directly mm -hmm. at least there are alternative sources of that and it can it can be a normal you know it can be a normal kind of meal um and, and it doesn't need to be anything special or different it's just another choice yeah yeah and i think the evidence of that is uh Ironically, we were talking about Burger King and where yeah. I started, right? Yeah, now, Burger yeah. King is one of the country's uh, largest 
sellers of impossible burgers, right? Um, but what they found, you know, in the first few months of the rollout was that it wasn't vegans and vegetarians that were flocking to Burger King for this. It was meat eaters yeah. who, who actually were curious about it, but then they loved the taste. And then maybe one in every X burgers that they ate on any given week was an impossible because they just felt like it, you know, tasted good. And yeah. so that being able to attract like the most devout, a carnivorous meat eater and get them to convert is where the bigger wins happen, right? It's not just like the niche people like me who are vegan, but the people who, uh, you know, would be eating meat um, if something like that didn't exist. Um, that's where the bigger wins, Absolutely. when the bigger wins happen. Yeah, I agree. And that's how you start really changing the tide. Uh, so for people who are interested in, in trying out the, the new dog treats and learning more about the work you're doing, where can people go to, to, to see all that and get updates? Yeah, a, a few places. Uh, and they're your standard cast of characters, right? Go to our, uh, our website, bondpets.com. And you'll be able to learn a little bit more about our work, our team. And also, if uh, you're interested, give our first dog treat a try. It's, it's, it is fantastic. It's amazing. Again, I'm biased. but How, uh, does, your, uh, how does your chief dog officer like uh, Yeah, no, she, uh, she's had about 5 million of these <laughs> <laughs> in the prototypes. And then uh, maybe not 5 million, but a lot. Uh, so yeah, no, it's it's something that we did a lot of uh, evaluation and testing with with a veterinary clinic in Austin to see how it digested and its palatability and friends and family. And so anyway, yeah, it, it's something that I, I'm pretty confident that anyone's dog will love. So our website is one place. We've also started to um, really uh, enable our voice on social. So we've got an Instagram and Facebook page and Twitter. Mostly Instagram is where we're we're telling most of our story right now. So if you're curious to see the beat of our day-to-day -day journey, that's a great place to go. Um, and yeah, yeah, just uh, give us a look, give us a try, follow us. And uh, hopefully one day, if, if you uh, get this in your cupboards, you'll, you'll be happy with what you see. We're pretty proud of it. I'm sure people will be. And uh, thank you very much, Rich, for, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. I think it was a, it was a great conversation. And uh, best of luck with the, next, with the next few years. It sounds like you have a really exciting journey ahead. You bet. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating. And also, please subscribe, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube. And that way you can be the first to know about new episodes. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.